Um, one, one way that I wanted to fill out this drawing here is kind of a, a point that, um, that Schreiner makes in his book is that if New Testament prophecy um, could contain what he says, error, then it would be false prophecy. And sh surely that can't be allowed in the church because of all the New Testament's warnings against false prophets. And so he's saying, <clears throat> how would you know, how would you know even who a false prophet is if Christians in the church can be speaking for things that are wrong when elsewhere the New Testament warns against false prophets? How would you not be able to say, well, that's a false prophet, you know? But I think that's where this analogy, this drawing can become helpful. So what is a false prophet in the New Testament? Well, a false prophet is somebody who claims to have uh, divine insight and authority and information. So they think that what they have is from God, but it's not in accordance with apostolic teaching and doctrine. So it's, it's both outside the line and it's above the line. I mean, that's a, that's a false prophet. So I don't think Schreiner's concern is uh, well-founded because how could, and besides in this category, it's not that things are being spoken that are wrong and evil and contrary to scripture that would be outside the line. It would be things that maybe were not, um, were not relevant. Maybe they were not timely. Maybe the person thought that this would be helpful and beneficial and relevant and, uh, and they step out and say it and they say, I, I think the Lord is wanting to encourage you in the area of depression. Um, and he wants you to know blah, blah, blah. And they maybe quote a scripture and everything. And the person goes away going, I've never been depressed a day in my life. I, I mean, they didn't say anything wrong, but it just didn't really apply. You know, it, that's not outside the bounds of scripture. Everything they said was true. It just, it wasn't spot on. It wasn't necessarily from the Lord, but it, it it's not, it, the categories are not either everything is from the Lord or it's from the devil or something like it's, so that's a false dichotomy. I mean, we prophesy in part, 1 Corinthians 13 says. Thank you. Um, we prophesy in part. So it, it's not going to be perfect and infallible. It's, it's going to be in, a, in agreement with. So that's the distinction there. Is I, I don't have any concern with saying New Testament prophecy functions today as human words spoken that God spontaneously brings to mind. I don't have any problems problem saying that. I don't think that raises the concern. Well, if it, if it can contain things that are not true, how would we even know who a false prophet is? Well, you would know because you're holding that up to the litmus test of scripture and it's actually outside of it. Whereas fallen, fallible, in part prophecy is, is still within the boundaries of scripture. You know, we might put, put it out here. This is the same warning about false teachers, right? They do the same thing claiming special revelation from God, but are teaching things that are contrary to what the Bible has said. Um, so that's that. Now, as we come into it, um, a point that we want to make here on the, this idea of apostles and prophets and, and office, the context of 1 Corinthians 12, and even as we move into 14, is not unpacking any office per se. It's unpacking function. It's unpacking life in the body. Remember the whole analogy, one body, many members, God's given all kinds of different parts. We all need each other. And when you come together, these ministries and functions should be happening. So what has God given to manifest himself to his people when they come together? Because that's definitely the picture. When you look at 1 Corinthians 12, um, verse 24b, God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. So here's context. The context is care, it's ministry, it's function. It's really not office and order per se in terms of institutional order of the, the church, but 
ministry function. If one member suffers, they all suffer. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually you're members of it. And then he says, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. So he's not lining out the, the authority structures in the church. He's not lining out office there. He's lining out ministry. God has given a variety of ministries to the church, which would include apostles. Now, to say that it includes apostles doesn't require us to say that the office of apostle continues. Um, how do we benefit from the ministry of apostleship? Because the apostles' words have been written down for us in the Bible. And God, is, God ministers to our heart through the gift of apostolic ministry that we have in the pages of Scripture. God ministers to our hearts through the prophetic function when the church gathers, which is why Paul spends 30-something, 40 verses on it in chapter 14. Um, he ministers to his people through teachers and miracles and healing and tongues and interpretation. In other words, he, he gives these gifts for the building up of the body of Christ um, and to, to encourage. So I think... Uh, if we try to find, if we try to impose um, questions about office onto verse 29, we may be asking that verse to, to bear more than it was designed to bear. That the verse's focus is really functional ministry in the church, the variety of gifts, the variety of ways God cares for his people, both apostolic and prophetic ministry. Um, so just, I hope that clarifies some of the other things we were talking about. So any follow-ups on that? For those y'all that asked about that. Okay. Mm -hmm. Impressions. So is there, okay, okay. Um, so is there less power in those words, calling them impressions, than there would be if he said now they're prophecy, if he was willing to say that. So is it that we need to make the distinction that this is prophecy because there's more power in that, though he may be saying the same words and just calling it something different? Or is it just that in not using the words prophecy, it's, it's like we're backing away, like you said, so maybe we'll be less likely to share something God's placed on our heart with someone because we're afraid mm -hmm. of that. I don't. Great question. And you bring up so many good points. And um, this is why we should be in Abilene this weekend, because Tom Schreiner is doing a conference on spiritual gifts in Abilene right now. Um, and we didn't know that when we picked this date. Otherwise, I would be there and I would ask him that question. Um, I, th I think... I'll try to articulate it in condensed fashion is, um, is does he think that by calling it impressions, it's, it's less powerful and uh, may make people a little bit more apt to share them than if, if in their mind they were going to be speaking forth a prophecy. That's an intimidating concept. And so we should back away from calling it that because that should be equated with divinely inspired speech and calling it impressions kind of lowers it into the category where it, it should be below the line. And that may encourage folks to move a little bit forward from it. So he's backing away from the concept, the word prophecy in exchange for the word impressions. And in so doing, um, he's, he's lowered it. Uh, is that kind of? So I said, do you think that we have missed out on some blessings because we never were willing, we, we, we were taught that was not good to acknowledge or to right. talk about that. So basically I just said, do you think we could have had, there could have been more power in our lives yeah. earlier on had yeah. we been willing and known more about this? So I'm just thinking if someone is, if willing to say prophecy and they are sharing words that God's placed on their heart to edify someone else, is there more power in what they're saying because they're willing to say it's prophecy? Mm. Or now, if I'm not willing to say that, is there less power in it because I'm somehow denying 
Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I, I think Schreiner thinks, he pro from my reading of it, he thinks that there's, um, that there, there is like taking it down a notch by calling it impressions. And so, but that's because his operating assumption is that prophecy is speaking the infallible words of God. So he does believe that he's lowering it. I don't believe that his definition of impressions is fundamentally any different than our definition of New Testament prophecy. So it comes down to, well, then what then should we call it? And are we missing out on something if we don't call it what the Bible calls it? Um, Schreiner does not think so. He, he thinks we're, we're risking a lot if we call it prophecy. He thinks that that's dangerous because fundamentally his starting point is that New Testament prophecy is divinely inspired speech. I would say, no, if we, that's not our starting point. And so what's the advantage in calling it what the Bible calls it besides the fact that the Bible calls it that and so why shouldn't we? But besides that, what, what advantage is there? I do think there's an advantage because when you really think of the function here of how special and unique this was and how limited the function of the Holy Spirit was in the Old Testament. And to think that now God has given his spirit to all people and this special function that was reserved only for a few people is now available to God's people today. This in the same way that there was a special place that you had to go called the temple to experience forgiveness and justification and, and everything happened there. The presence of God was there. Now we all are temples of the Holy Spirit. You know, so I, I think by not calling it prophecy, we give up some Old Testament special connotations that were there. Now we need to define what those are, lest we think that New Testament prophecy is equal to Old Testament prophecy. Got to define that term, but there is a, a special communication from God Going back to Patty's question, what's the common denominator in these, in these terms? That's what it is, is that, that God convenes with his people through this gift. And in the Old Testament, that resulted in divinely inspired speech. In the New Testament, it results in speaking human words that God spontaneously brings to mind that's tested and weighed against scripture and in agreement with. I think it's good to call it that because it, 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 it pulls all of this weight from Old Testament, the Old Testament idea of presence into the experience. And we have to be careful that we don't elevate it beyond what it should be elevated to. But if we throw it out entirely, I, I do think we kind of missed that piece. You think? Yeah. <laughs> it's just being recorded. So yeah, it helps something super people valuable say. How did you say that? Does it lose power? How did you say it? Yes. Yeah. So I, I just had a thought while you were speaking that maybe it's not that it loses its power to the person you are trying to encourage or share with, but maybe it's that if you're unwilling to say that it loses its power in your life hmm. because you're somehow lessening the power of the Holy Spirit by almost denying so that's what I think, I'm kind I think, of, I think right. you're going in the direction I'm thinking is what what I think because let's say there's a cessationist church does God still operate so like Shriner is admitting that the Holy Spirit is operating in our church right you know yeah. and we're, we're calling it impressions what I think is sad about that is I don't think it loses any power I think it's a loss of glory to God I, th I think, you know, haven't you had an experience where somebody's come to you and they've, hey, you know, here's a scripture. I just, you're on my heart. Here's a scripture. And, and we come away, if we, if we lose this category of spiritual gift and God's active presence, I think we can come away with, what a kind person. And I'm so glad they know their Bible. And, and it's still edifying, but there was, God was here. Let's glorify him. He's moving in grace gifts that we didn't deserve. All hail King mm -hmm. Jesus. You know, mm -hmm. that's where I think, you know, that's why I think it's important to, to let's call these spiritual gifts and let's stop and recognize them and let's bow before the Lord, our God, our maker in thankfulness for all the gifts that he gives.
to his yeah. body. So, yeah. That's so good. Yeah, so well said. And, you know, it, it's hard to answer the question, did we miss out on power earlier in our life by neglecting this aspect of the Bible's teaching? Um, uh, you know, who knows? I mean, it's, it's hard to say. I do, I do think, though, that moving forward, it, a, a fair flip side to that question is, is there a greater experience of the presence of God that he has for us that I have not really experienced up to this point in my life? And I, I think if I think the answer would be yes. Um, but that would be that would follow to be true anytime we come into a greater understanding of what the Bible teaches. Like I couldn't articulate imputation and justification by faith when I got saved at 10. I didn't know what those concepts meant and penal substitution and all of that. But my depth of affection for Jesus and what he accomplished for me on the cross grew later in life as I came into understanding of what the Bible teaches, you know, and then the same with reformed theology and the doctrine of election. Like that was the furthest thing from my mind when I got saved at 10 years old. But as, as I learned that I was, was, you know, that's another, that's one of those marking times where God just met me. And I was a teenager and I was weeding the garden for money to go on a mission strip. And I'm listening to a teaching um, uh, on by uh, John MacArthur, and he's preaching on the doctrine of election. And I just remember being in the garden on my knees in the mud, just weeping. I was probably 14 years old. And I came to some trusted leaders with shared this experience. And they very quickly said, that's heresy. That's called Calvinism. That's not true, which set me on a track to really study these things. And for several years, I was an all-out Arminian, Pelagian, you know, free will person um, until Pastor Billy preached through Romans 9 and Alice Brown patiently answered all of my objections to Reformed theology and brought me full circle back to where <laughs> do that. But, you know, we, we go through <clears throat> life um, missing aspects of scripture and then God opens our eyes to him and we grow and, and there's a greater experience of his nearness and his reality. And so the question for all of us is, does God have a greater experience of his presence for us? Remember the fee quote yesterday, Gordon Fee, that the, the, the God's empowering presence with his people is what marks and defines the people of God as distinct from the world around us, that God is truly with us. He is among us. And he desires to show up. He desires to manifest himself. And we want him to do that, you know. And so we can look with faith to the future that he has much more for us than we've had up to this point. Yep. Love that question. So prophecy, you know, gets into, you know, the, uh, let's get into the content. Um, it's not always predictive. A good guideline um, for Biblical priorities for prophecy, as some have said, no dates, no mates. So we're, we're, we're not saying God's told me who you're going to marry and um, on such and such a date, Jesus is going to return and things like Like when you get into that kind of stuff, you start kind of getting into outside of these rails. Um, those are just wise guidelines <laughs> that heard years ago. Um, but the content is given to us in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 3. On the, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation, upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. Well, going, Delane asked a question about really how is prophecy and preaching different? Well, this is how. So preaching is expounding a particular biblical text and giving the sense of it and helping people apply it. And you're operating out of a particular passage. Um, the way prophecies function in the Corinthian church is it seems to be more spontaneous that God speaks to someone. If a, if a revelation comes to someone, which just pause, when we talk about revelation in terms of prophecy, um, contrary to what cessationists would have us think, the word revelation does not always, in every case, only ever mean divinely inspired speech that is infallible and binding and authoritative for all people at all time. It can just be God revealed something. It's a, re it's a revelation in that sense. It's down here. <laughs> and, and so, you know, just be okay with the concept of revelation because that's how Paul deals with it here. Um, so it's, it's more spontaneous. It's more personal. It's more specific. Um, again, the secrets of his heart are disclosed. 
his whole argument in these verses about why he would rather than prophesy than speak in tongues is because prophecy in the gathering builds up people personally, particularly, specifically. Um, and so that's why he would rather them rather than do that. Um, so, yeah, we talked about that. Fallen on his face, he worships God. In other words, there's just an awareness as a result of prophecy that God is here and God is with us. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones tells the story that he gets from Thomas Goodwin, who was a Puritan, who describes this experience. Um, he, he, Goodwin used this Goodwin, the Puritan, used this illustration in a sermon to describe what an encounter with the Spirit is like. And, and Martin Lloyd-Jones is telling this story. So he says, a man and his little child are walking down the road, and they're walking hand in hand. And the child knows that he is a child of his father, and he knows that his father loves him, and he rejoices in that, and he's happy in that. And there's no uncertainty about it at all. But suddenly the father, moved by some impulse, takes hold of the child and picks him up and holds him in his arms and kisses him and embraces him and showers his love upon them. And then he puts them down again, and they go on walking together. What a great picture. That's what I was trying to say last night with the punctuated equilibrium of sanctification, that there are these moments where the father just scoops us up in his arms, and we've just become profoundly aware of his personal and particular love for me, even me, in my own sin. I mean, throughout the Christian life, we, we may be aware that God loves us, and he's forgiven us, and he's uh, accepted us and adopted us into his family. But there are times, I hope you've experienced it, there are times when that truth just lands on you in a way that affects every part of your being. And you're, you're moved by that. There's, it, it, it's not just something you've thought about, but it, it just hits you. I mean, I think my experience weeding the garden, hearing about the doctrine of election, had that impact on me. Like, just blown away. God's... The, the garden there became the presence of God for me in that moment. And God, God meets us in that way. So that's, that's the way prophecy functions. Um, a pastor friend of ours has answered the question, how do you know when God is leading you to say something that might be prophetic? Again, prophetic is not always future. It may just be that sense of God's love. Um, and he described it as an interrupting affection. That there's, there's an interrupting affection for someone else or for a particular group of people or an awareness that God wants to minister to and encourage and care for this particular person or this particular group in this moment and comfort them with these truths from Scripture and speak and encourage them, speak to them in a way that is encouraging, upbuilding, and consoling. Um, you know, this is what it means uh, about presence, which is why we started here last night. Presence is not uh, just a feeling. It's an acute awareness that God... Um, it, it's an acute awareness of the nearness of God, where our knowledge of him and who he is and what he's done just lands on us in these personal and felt ways. That's why I love the Goodwin analogy. I think that's so helpful. We realize uh, that God loves me personally, corporately. And when we realize that, when we realize that as a church family, when we're gathered together and several of us are just being affected by what we're singing or what we're hearing being preached, in those times, God is manifesting his presence to us personally and corporately. Um, now, Grudem states... As we think about, okay, how does this look in practical sense? Since the gift of prophecy, like most spiritual gifts, can vary in strength, churches should be willing to be patient and encouraging towards those who are trying to trying this gift for the first time, as they would with any other gifts, such as teaching, evangelism, works of mercy. Those who have the gift should expect that it is used. Um, that is, should expect that as it is used, it may increase in strength or intensity. They may gain more ability to distinguish clearly what is a revelation and what is not more evidence that the gift is edifying the church, more ability to report it in a helpful way to the church, and perhaps even more frequent and more extensive revelations will be received. Now, again, just caveating the word revelation. We're not talking about biblical, divinely inspired revelation. We're just talking about God put 
to use Shriner's words, impressions on our hearts. Um, and so since this gift can vary in intensity and, in, and expression, we shouldn't be surprised to see prophetic ministry happening in our church already, even if we haven't always labeled it as prophetic ministry. So on Shriner's own definition, I would say, well, then you have prophetic ministry happening. You might not want to call it New Testament prophecy, but based on our understanding of what prophecy is, it's happening. You know, I would, I would say in, in ardently, like hard cessationist churches, like John MacArthur's church, the, the gifts are operating all the time, but they just are not going to call it that. But the spirit of God is at work in divinely supernatural ways. And um, even Spurgeon, who was a, was a cessationist, tells many stories of where he's preaching and he just goes off the notes and he says, I think there's, God's just put it on my heart that there's somebody here and you're a, a shoe cobbler and you uh, recently fixed your books to try to make it over on somebody and God wants you to know that that's not right and yet he's offered you forgiveness. If you turn and repent to him, he will save you and he will free you and he will, if you just come to him. Anyway, let back to the text and some guy comes up later, that, that's me, how did you know that? And there, you know, and like God just divinely discloses the secrets of men's hearts and Spurgeon tells multiple stories of that and then like Shriner ends his book. Nonetheless, I'm a cessationist. And you're like, okay, <laughs> it doesn't sound like it. Um, but what I really appreciate about the cessationist position is they are so passionate to preserve this, and we are too, and that is so important. But out of that passion, they maybe erase some of these terms. And but uh, I just I just love that. So the spirit of God is at work. I think. Our small group meetings are a less formal context where we can grow in this gift. You know, as you're in discipleship group and you're listening to people share, you could be praying that God would grant to you some insight that would build up and encourage and comfort that person. Maybe it's a scripture or a song lyric or just something you share verbally from the heart. Remembering that if it is indeed the ministry of New Testament prophecy, it would agree with scripture and not contradict it in any way. And it will actually indeed build up and encourage and comfort that person. But um, we should be freed to try this out and to, you know, Paul doesn't specifically say, how do you pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts, but that you do it. How do you earnestly desire it? Well, that's saying something about the heart. There's a desire there. But I don't think Paul intends the desire to stop with mere desire, <laughs> but that that desire would translate into some kind of action. And so at some point, we've got to step out in faith and open our mouth and say something. And I think the, the fear there is probably that we don't want to mess it up. We don't want to say something that's uh, wrong. But if we have to, if we keep in mind, I think it's freeing to keep this image in mind, because if we keep in mind that what we're going to say in that moment is there's no requirement that it be equal to scripture. We're not speaking forth divinely inspired words from God himself. We're speaking forth human words that God spontaneously brought to mind to build up someone else in a way that agrees with scripture and points them really to the truth that's contained in scripture. And so I think understanding that it, it belongs on the bottom tier really should free us and, and, to, and to say, here's where we need to run. Um, so, you know, John Payne's analogy, if you have a huge open forest or a huge open field and you have a start point and a finish point um, and the finish point is some weird place around all these obstacles and you don't know where to go. But if there's a path, then the path lets you run freely in the path. Is the path restrictive? Sure. But the path is freeing because it tells you exactly where to go, where to go. And so... Um, the path is scripture. And if we stick to scripture as our guide and as our authority, then within those vertical lines, we can run where in the, in the place where God has called us in these gifts. Uh, trust in that as we keep scripture before us, we will be guarded and protected. Um, yeah, so sometimes the, the revelation or word of prophecy can come at a later time, such as during a prayer time. You may share that word with that person, um, even though it's not in the public context. I do think that's a form of prophetic ministry that can happen in the body as well. Um, it's the view that Paul has in mind in the analogy in uh, chapter 12 with the way the body works. In the formal gathering, there's another opportunity to minister to the broader body of Christ. 
And uh, one of the ways we try to obey 1 Corinthians 14 and the instructions about regulating prophecy and testing it is by what we use. And we, we, you know, it's not, this is not in the Bible, but it's like, how do we practice the principles the Bible has given us? So one, one way we do it is we have the microphone up there in the front so that others can hear what you're saying. And um, it's up there next to one of the pastors, usually Pastor Billy. And some, sometimes someone has something on their heart that they would like to share with the broader body. And so they bring that to one of the pastors who weighs carefully what is said. And then the person shares that word with the body. And then we all as a body weigh carefully what is said. And we hold fast to what is good. And that's what prophecy is. And so some people might, might say that's, that's not necessarily for me. Um, you know, somebody... It could be something specific to a specific group of people, uh, parents of wayward children. Like, well, I don't even have kids. Okay, well, that's not for you. That's all right. Doesn't mean it's a, they're a false prophet. Um, God may be still wanting to speak personally and particularly to that group of people for their upbuilding, encouragement, and edification. Um, so we've encouraged those sharing something at the ministry, Mike, not to use phrases that would obscure the sole authority of scripture as being on the top shelf. We don't want anyone to think that, that that person's words are binding or that they're speaking forth the very words of God, unless of course they're quoting scripture. And even then it should be in context. Um, and Judas went and hung himself, go and do likewise. You know, those are both scriptures, uh, but that would not, not be uh, contextually correct. Um, but that's not to say that what you're saying is not from God, because it very well may be. And so we want to use language that reflects this human words that God brings to mind dynamic that is bound up in the definition for New Testament prophecy. So we, we say things like we don't begin in a, uh, when a word of prophecy is given in our church, we encourage people not to begin with the old charismatic injunction, thus saith the Lord. And uh, I mean, I grew up in a church where this one guy would give prophetic utterances, and it was always in King James, even though it wasn't quoting scripture. Um, like in his mind, God spoke in King James English. Um, so he would give prophecy in that, in that kind of thing with a lot of these and thous and stuff like that. Um, I, I think we need to do things better than that and try to reflect the human dynamic that comes. Um, so we say things like, I think, or it seems, as I, as I was praying, I had a sense that. Um, I, I have an impression from the Lord. Let's find using the Shriner's own cessation as language. I had an impression from the Lord, which is, in fact, very continuationist. Um, something the Lord laid in my heart during that song was that he wants to encourage people, um, X. Um, I've been burdened lately for people who, whatever. And I think the Lord wants you to know. See how that language just reflects this human component that I am not saying, thus saith the Lord. But I do think God wants to minister to us personally as we gather in this way. Uh, the Lord brought this scripture to mind, and I would like to share it. Um, there, there's no formulas. I mean, just trying to give ways to avoid giving the impression that prophecy in the church is on par with scripture. And so those are just some simple ways that we can do that. Um, now, I think I am done with saying what I wanted to say on, on prophecy. So any questions, and then we'll quickly skim through some of the other gifts. What you've been describing, isn't that, or can it be just a word of knowledge that's been given to you instead of calling a prophecy? Yeah, so the word of knowledge is another that's laid alongside and even distinguished from prophecy. And we, we have a lot of instruction about the gift of prophecy. We don't have a lot of definition about word of knowledge, but um, lots of people have, have tried to really define these things in compartmental ways, and, uh, and, and I suppose it's helpful. We just have to kind of hold it all with a grain of salt. So in, in years past, we would call it the prophecy mic, but because of what you're saying, we came to the conviction that that's not necessarily helpful because we're not sure if that was prophecy or word of knowledge or word of wisdom um, or discerning of spirit or like, we're not always sure exactly what supernatural gift was functioning in that moment. So we just started calling it the ministry, Mike, because it, it might be any of those. Yeah. 
I don't think the Lord wants us to get hung up on which compartment does that word need to fit in. I think the focus is, did God meet with us in a personal way that resulted in my upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation? And that, and that that's the takeaway. And um, so if I have time to share my personal example, I mean, you'll, you'll hear there are parts of that that are extremely uniquely insightful, which I would say is word of knowledge. And there were other parts of that were, that were just prophetic, not in a future sense, but in the sense, uh, well, there was some future things in there, um, but prophetic in the future sense that the Lord impressed on me. It was the experience that Goodwin describes. Just there was an overwhelming sense of God's personal and particular love for me that was that just landed on me in a way that affected every part of my being, you know? And so I think that's, that's that part of it was prophetic and part of it was word of knowledge. And it's not so clearly broken up and, and that's okay. You know? So yeah, great question. Anyone else? that be better asked in the Q&A time? No, we can do that now. Yep. So I, I was just kind of saying how, how we did it here. Um, are you asking more broadly or? Just some specific, specific things on it. Um, okay. Like, so one question would be, uh, you know, I don't know, y'all probably addressed this in the foundations class, but, you know, so like Paul writing to the Corinthians and telling them to judge the prophecy by what they speak and all that. So he's writing to the church there. So obviously I think y'all, see a, uh, a role for the elders to kind of be the first uh not line of defense but maybe in mm -hmm. in, in seeing what that person has to say and evaluating that against scripture mm -hmm. um so can you speak to that like you know maybe first like how you guys see your responsibility to do that versus the congregations and evaluating what this person has to say yeah good yep good question so i'm thinking um two places that that flows out of one being the responsibility to shepherd the flock of God and to protect against wolves that would devour the flock and uh, to know well the condition of your flock and all, all of those uh, kinds of commands that are bound up with pastoral responsibilities. So um, yeah, I don't think it would be a wise practice for pastors to abdicate that, to let it be a free for all. So that was how it was in the context where I grew up is the music would die down and somebody would just start speaking out loud. I mean, it was a free-for-all. You didn't know what was going to come out of their mouth. It could be heresy. There is, you know, and and but the way the leadership saw that is, well, if it's heresy, it's the church's job to weigh what is said. And if it's heresy, reject it. And they may come up after and say, uh, we don't think that was right. And I have seen that happen. <laughs> um, but I, I think a, a better expression of the role that God has given uniquely to pastors to shepherd God's people, to lead them and exhort them, especially when they gather, requires that they be involved in the testing and weighing of prophecies. So that's why we have it, have them come to the pastors first. The second place that that comes from actually is 1 Corinthians 14 and the very curious controversial verse, verse 34. Um, As in all the churches, the women should keep silent in the churches. They are not permitted to speak but should be in submission as the law also says. Now, right there, we want to, if we read that in isolation, we're like, now, wait a second, Paul. In chapter 11, you just said, you just talked about women prophesying and praying publicly in the gathering. But here you're saying they shouldn't even speak. So you're contradicting yourself over the course of three chapters. No, I mean, if we had time to unpack this, um, I think the context here where if desire to learn, let them ask their husbands, all of that, I think the whole context of those verses is the judging and weighing of prophecy. And that in the public gathering, women should be silent in regard to uh, the, the judging and weighing of public prophecies and responding to it and giving direction to it. All of those being uniquely pastoral functions. And in that sense, they're to remain silent in the churches and, and to reserve the right to test weigh prophecies publicly to the pastors and those that have been called by God to lead the gathering, lead the church. Um, yeah, because uh, otherwise, if it was just categorical silence in the churches, we, we just couldn't square that with 
chapter uh, 11, and um, or, or the examples in Acts of uh, the, the, the what's his name's daughters who are all prophets, and uh, you know, so we just see we we see and the Joel prophecy that your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and so I don't think he's saying women should be silent in regard to prophecy. Um, so that's a that's a side note, but I think it does underscore the pastor's job to test and weigh what is said. Yeah, great question. Very good. Anyone else? Which just to say a, another point about that, I mean, I've, I've made this point in, in many contexts, but it's worth repeating is I, I do think, you know, that the Lord uses women wonderfully in the gift of prophecy. And when I think of the last several times that um, there's been a, a, a prophetic word in our church, it's been through our women. And I think that's, that's wonderful and glorious and biblical. Um, in the New Testament, the women were prophesying. Paul didn't tell them to stop. Um, when we understand that prophecy is not authoritative, it makes perfect sense. Um, if we adapt Schreiner's definition, then nobody should prophesy, especially women, because 1 Timothy 2, don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. But when we understand that it's not authoritative, it, it makes a lot of sense. And just the way God has wired women to be um, nurturing and comforting and consoling. I mean, you realize the Holy Spirit, the way Jesus refers to him is the comforter. And certainly men can be comforting and, and be able to, to care for people. I think Pastor Billy's a wonderful example of that. Um, but the way that women are sensitive and discerning and particularly nurturing and caring, you would almost expect the spirit to minister to the body of Christ through women. And in our experience, that's what happens. And I realize that's kind of anecdotal, um, but I think it just makes sense um, as we understand what the Bible's saying here about prophecy. So I think ladies, you know, lean in, lean into this. I mean, this is I think this could be a, a wonderful way the Lord uses you. And the, the way that, when I say lean in, I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, well, if you don't get the gift of prophecy, you're, you're in this second tier of Christianity to kind of at the bottom of the scale or something like that. Don't forget 1 Corinthians 12. Every part, everybody plays a different part. Everybody's needed. Um, but Paul doesn't want us to exclude the gift of prophecy in that. He wants to allow a space for that. He, he spends 40 verses creating space for the function of the gift of prophecy in the church. And so we want to be open to that. And I think if, if pursue love is our guiding North Star, then God will function through us in whatever gift that he sees fit. And I just want to encourage you, keep prophecy open as one of those possibilities. Yeah. Okay, good. Well, I'm going to just skim through some of these others, um, and then we'll take a break. And then when we come back, we'll do Q&A for the last uh, 45 minutes or so. Anything else on prophecy? I guess I'll take the risk of asking that one more time. <laughs> yeah. Others judge, right? And I know our practice would be, you know, you go to the pastor, one of the pastors and so forth, but could it be referring to other prophets that are, you know, or others that have that gift or maybe even discernment perhaps? I don't right. know. Right. Um, yeah, I think, I think so. And so some people, um, that is an actual position where some theologians believe that is, exactly what it's referring to is other prophets. Um, and I think that's a possibility. Um, but the broader teaching, just a broader category of pastoral theology, just what the Bible teaches about the office of pastor, uh, it seems to me a, a wise practice would be that they're at least involved in that. And they may include other people with the gift of prophecy and discerning of spirits and all that. So those of you who are going to come with us to our pastor's conference, I mean, nobody draws attention to this, but, um, one thing that happens is there's usually a, a person who's designated there to uh, help weigh what is said, you know, before it's shared at the, the ministry mic. And um, and I know in the, like there's one guy that does it often. He's not a he's not a pastor, 
but he's a guy that God uses a lot um, in that gift. And he's in leadership in the church, but he's, I don't think he's an elder. At least he, he wasn't um, last I knew. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, so you've got pastors there and they're involving other people to help test and weigh. I think that's super wise. So I think it would come back down to the elders or, you know, because there's, there's somebody, remember he says, let one or two. That, that shows there, there's leadership taking place there, you know. Um, so I think, I think the reference to others is referring to the leadership component that he's speaking of really in, in, in for sure in 14, if not, if not 12 also, but for sure in chapter, chapter 14. Yeah. So. Yeah, and if um, you know, so appreciate Hugh and how he's helped us uh, move forward in these things. So I don't know if you know this about Hugh, but it may make you uncomfortable. But um, he may be a quiet guy, but he is super charismatic. I would say, <laughs> very much in tune with the spirit and what the spirit of God is saying. Um, the Lord has, I believe spoken clearly to you in dreams. So when you shared back in February, di didn't you end up in a sermon sharing the dream that the Lord gave you? Yeah. So you should go back and, and listen to that message. Um, I think that's an example of prophetic uh, ministry that, that God revealed something to you um, about our church. And it, and it was, it did have a future component to it. Um, and, and so he spoke that forth and shared that in the, in the context of a sermon. Um, but none, nonetheless, uh, your, your example in pursuing love and earnestly desiring spiritual gifts is so compelling. Many, many times in our meetings, Hugh will be sharing something and just break down in tears over something that the Lord has shown him. Like God is meeting with him. God, there are these moments for even, you know, I'm making this point because this is, we're not talking about something that's bound up with your personality type. Like, well, if you're real emotional, you'll feel love for God. I mean, it's not, if you're real loud, if you're type A personality, then you'll be dramatic. That, we're not talking about being dramatic. I mean, Hugh could tell you there are times in his life where God scooped him up in his arms and twirled around and hugged him and put him back down and they just kept on walking. You know, kind of, I mean, not literally, but just that experience of these moments where God just meets you in powerful ways and you experience his nearness and his presence. And, and you know, what I appreciate about the charismatic movement is the desire to have that. Um, and what I appreciate about the cessationist movement is the recognition that sanctification should not be marked by that continuously. And it's not either or. We want to have that. And we want to understand that sanctification is a long and slow process. But we want God to break in at times and do things. And, uh, and, and, and in the in-betweens, we're being faithful. We're looking for God's grace in the ordinary. And he's showing up in those ways too. So anyway, those are all some good both ands. So yeah, Hugh, thanks for your example to us as, as a team to press us forward in these things. Okay, some of the other gifts. I'm just going to, we're going to go through these really quickly um, and then take a short break. There are four lists of gifts in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10. 1 Corinthians 12, 28 to 30. Romans 12, 6 through 8. And then you could kind of include Ephesians 4, 11. The point in, in all of these gifts is that there's not some specific number. Um, it's more like, I think we should understand the, the, the lists of gifts as these are the kinds of things that the Spirit does. Um, many of the terms are broad. They're open-ended. They're not defined in the Bible. They're just dropped, and they're there, and we're going, what does that mean? <laughs> Some of them are explained in Scripture more than others, um, but not all of them are. And as I said before, we don't want to try to neatly compartmentalize all of these. Um, so the gift of wisdom is one of those. Um, Paul uses the word wisdom throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. And so the gift of wisdom um, would, be, would be 
wisdom that is particularly informed by the gospel. So to understand Paul's use of the gift of wisdom in 1 Corinthians 12, we want to understand how Paul treated the wisdom of God compared to the wisdom of the world earlier in the book. So all of that that comes to bear. Um, in terms of a, of a gift, it's the particular expression of godly and gospel wisdom for a given situation. Um, so how is, really like with any of the, the gifts, we were talking last night after the meeting, how are some of these gifts different from just what happens in sanctification? So we all want to be getting wiser in the Lord. So how is there a gift of wisdom? Well, in the context of 1 Corinthians 14 and upbuilding encouragement and consolation, some people are deposited with a, a, a particular measure of gifting that benefits others, that is broadly helpful, that is particularly clarifying, that wisdom comes to bear in a particular situation. I can think of people in our small group over the years who were just able to bring wisdom to a moment that was, you look back on and go, oh, that was so wise. And that was just, that was the Lord meeting us. You know, that, it's kind of like, that's beyond just the normal wisdom we should all be growing in in sanctification. There's something supernatural about it. And, um, and that seems to be what is reflected in the idea of the gift of wisdom. Um, same thing uh, with, with knowledge. Now, some people equate the gift of knowledge with the gift of uh, preaching, and certainly preachers should be knowledgeable. Um, but knowledge seems to be more similar to uh, uh, something that involves insight, um, insight into a particular person's situation or life. So we think of uh, Jesus with a Samaritan woman. He saw the details that nobody else knew. Um, Peter with Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, Paul, seeing the faith of the crippled person in Acts chapter 14. Um, so, you know, is special insight into a situation. It's, again, that, that may be involved in, in prophecy. So some people would put that under the, the broader umbrella of prophecy. And I, I think that that's fine. Um, the gift of faith. I mean, all, it's another one. All believers should have faith, right? So what is the gift of faith? Um, again, in the context of 1 Corinthians 12, if you look at verse 7, that's the guiding light here. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So the gift of faith would be the Spirit giving uh, different gifts to believers that goes beyond just saving faith. It's um, a, a spiritual gift that, that is a spiritual manifestation that just exists in a greater or stronger degree that goes beyond the ordinary spirit-given faith in all believers. Um, this seems to be what Paul's referring to in chapter 13, verse 2, faith so as to remove mountains. It's faith in a greater measure. Even John MacArthur, cessationist, he says, the gift of faith is expressed toward God through prayer, appealing to and trusting God to do that which is beyond his normal provision. I mean, you've probably known people who, who have, like, you know, I was thinking last night of a missionary family who, who moved from the United States and comfort and stability and job and move their family to an unreached people group in Thailand. Uh, this is a, a missionary in Sovereign Grace. And just think, that, that just takes a measure of faith that most of us don't have. I mean, I think probably that family, that, that couple has the gift of faith. Um, the gift of... Uh, Let's go on to um, gifts of healing. Um, try to summarize this one, and you can ask about it in the Q&A if you have, have questions. To be fair to cessationists, most cessationists believe that God can heal. They're not saying God doesn't heal. What they're saying, which we actually agree with, is that people don't possess a resident gift to heal at will. Nobody could just walk up to somebody and heal at will except Jesus. Even, uh, even the apostles um, bumped into their own limitations. Paul could not heal whatever uh, thorn in the flesh was afflicting him. He had to tell Timothy to do some practical things for his stomach issues. If Paul could walk up and heal anybody at will, why didn't he just heal Timothy? Um, so healing in the New Testament doesn't seem to be a resident gift that can just be exercised at will. Rather, 
what we do see is the, the phrase in the New Testament is gifts of healing, plural gifts of healing is what we see uh, in, in 1 Corinthians uh, 12, 9. Um, and so healing seems to be a gift that God grants in a moment. That God, we prayed for somebody and God healed them. And what happened? God granted that gift in the moment. Now, I, I, uh, the last time we were in Nepal, we were up in the mountains and a lady came forward um, for prayer and she was, she was completely deaf. She couldn't hear anything. And she came forward to be prayed. She was like 100 years old. She was so old. And one of, one of our team brought a chair because she was sitting crisscross applesauce on the floor at like 100 years old. And so somebody brought her a chair which goes to show how blind we and our Western people are. Like, our way is better. We always assume that. And we brought her the chair, and she sat crisscross applesauce on the chair. Like, why did you bring this chair? You know. But anyway, um, yeah, that we, we prayed for her, and God healed her. She could hear everything. She had a big smile on her face, and she said, I can hear everything now. I mean, God just – God. so what happened? Does that mean that – one of the people in the crowd who laid hands on her and prayed for her happened to have the gift of healing. I would just say God granted the gift of healing to her. He, get, he healed her. And that is a gift. That's a supernatural gift from the Holy Spirit. And God, God healed her. Um, and the Bible, of course, exhorts us to pray for healing and to ask for healing. So in many cessationist writings, they will say that we believe God heals, but not normally. And I appreciate in reform circles the emphasis on um, a theology of suffering and endurance and God's sovereignty in our suffering. And that's good. We definitely want to uh, commend that and, and agree with that. Um, but I also appreciate the charismatic impulse to say, let's pray for the sick. We need to do that. Um, because both have, so the error on both sides is on one hand, cessationist reformed evangelical groups may stress endurance and sovereignty in suffering to the expense of actually praying for the sick. And charismatics can neglect a view of God's sovereignty that God would want to sanctify you in your suffering. And they're always just looking for that instant deliverance. And so they're constantly praying for healing and they get confused and disillusioned when God doesn't heal because they don't have a category for sustaining grace in the midst of suffering. So my question is, do we need to choose between one or the other? Can we not have a view of God's sovereignty that he wants to sustain us if he doesn't heal us? And at the same time, we're going to pray for the sick and ask God to heal. And we don't know if God's going to do it. So it doesn't mean we have to pray in such a way that gives God all of the outs. Well, God, we realize you might not want to. And if you don't, that's okay. We're still going to trust you. But we're going to ask you to, if you would, kind of please heal him. But we realize you might not because that might not be in your sovereign will. But if it might be, then we're, you know, and it can feel kind of perfunctory. Like, what are we praying? We don't, we're not required to know what God's divine will is in this situation. James 5.14, if anyone's among you sick, call on the elders of the church, let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. Just pray for him. Pray. And we don't know what God's going to do. So I think of the, uh, is it a poem poem or a hymn or something that, that says, "Large, thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring. For his love and power are such that none can ever ask too much. We can never ask too much of God. So let's ask. In fact, when we ask small prayers of God, what does that really reflect we believe about God? That he can only, he can only do a few little things. When he's kind of busy, doesn't have a lot of power, like don't exhaust him. Just you know, take it easy and, and don't ask for healing too much. I mean, to be fair, I think the reason cessationists don't want to ask for healing too much is um, a, just a fear of disappointing people. I mean, there's a good caring impulse in that. We don't want people to be disappointed. But I think if we give them a robust theology of endurance and suffering and sanctifying grace in their trial and their sickness, we don't have to be afraid of that. We can say, let's endure as, as you suffer and let's ask God to heal. I love the parable of Jesus saying uh, the persistent widow and banging on the door in the middle of the night. That whole parable starts with Jesus saying, and he told them this parable to teach them that they should pray and not give up. Jesus just had a category for us to say, you need to have a category for praying and not giving up. God didn't answer the prayer. It mustn't be his will. You don't know that? 
pray and don't give up. We don't know what his, disclose, his divine secret will is. So we pray and we keep asking. And we trust him when he answers in the way he wants, in the timing that he wants, because we recognize he's sovereign. See, it's, it's both and. Um, so I, I just think that's, that's a wonderful thing. That's why many, many times we'll say, uh, if, if prayer at the end of the service, come forward if you want to pray. Um, we we want to pray for you. And so I think, you know, that's a way we can grow as a church is just encouraging you to come and do James, do some James 5 stuff. Come to the elders of the church and ask for prayer for healing. Because lo and behold, we are continuationists. And we believe God will occasionally heal. And I don't know how frequent he's going to do it or how infrequent. doesn't matter. The Bible calls us to do it. And we can pray in faith and ask God to do what he's called us to do and ask for. Let's ask for these things. Um, so that's, that's healing. I love this thing that um, Sam Storms said about some of these gifts. Let me get it right. Well, I can't find it. But it was, I told it to you, Pastor Billy, the other day. It was really good. It was really good. Here. Here, I'm not find it. Okay, yeah, he said, do, he said, do you believe God intends for the supernatural to break into our world reality more than it currently does? You know, and we're having this weekender to say yes. So then he, he goes on and he says, I don't care if I never experienced the supernatural. I'm going to pray for it and pursue it because I'm commanded to do so in the Bible. What God, what God does with those prayers is up to him. But I must be faithful to all of Scripture, including the parts that tell me to earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially prophecy in the context of what we're saying, healing as well. Um, we may never experience it, but the Bible calls us to pray for it and ask for it. And at least in, in doing that, our faith is built. And um, if, if, that, if that occurs alongside a robust theology of God's sovereignty in the midst of suffering and all of that, then great, great comfort and benefit can come from praying for the sick. Um, la last one, I think, yeah. Wor working of miracles. Um, a, a miracle, broadly speaking, is a demonstration of power. Um, even cessationists believe that... Uh, Miracles can still happen. Again, like healing, they don't believe that uh, miracle working power resides in any individual, um, and we don't either. I, I would say that's a hyper-charismatic expression, somebody that can just, you know, if they want to part the Mississippi River, they can just do it. They just walk up and part it. I mean, I don't know that there's too many people that really believe that miracles happen that way. Um, but we do believe that God, God, works miracles. Um, they're both expressions of divine grace through people, uh, not, not merely expressions of divine grace in that, boy, it, like you can think of miracles that happen apart from people where God just does something and you're able to look back and go, wow, that was just a miracle. But God uses an actual person to effect um, some miracle. And uh, so I can think of a, a couple of examples. Um, were y'all here when Dean shared about Rancho 3M, right? So he, he mentioned uh, a time in Mexico when uh, there was just a tremendous outpouring, what, what we would say is the closest thing to revival we've ever seen, where entire communities were transformed and um, Christians were being saved by the thousands and churches being planted and crime diminishing and bars shutting down and every just total transfer is unreal. And in the midst of that, many supernatural things, many healings, many expressions of God's divine power and presence. And um, one of those was uh, Ermana Duran. She, she had a property where she grew crops, and it was in the middle of a three-year drought. Now, they told me when you're down here, it's going to be 128 degrees, and I didn't believe them, so I took a thermometer with me. And uh, sure enough, it was 130 degrees during the day, and at night it got down to 115 and it was miserable. You couldn't go outside for more than a few minutes. Uh, they were in the middle of a drought, and uh, they began to pray, and believers came together and prayed, 
And in the middle of that drought, God sent a rainstorm and it rained right up to their property lawn on all sides. And it just poured out in rain. Um, I would say that's a miracle. Um, another example, there were local people when we were going up into the mountains and local people who were very much opposed to the gospel uh, were poised in the trees hiding to rob and torture and harm the group. When it came up the road, we were in rented vans and, you know, 40 or so Americans and going up to preach the gospel up in this village. And uh, we didn't know that they were waiting there ready to harm the group and stop us. Um, but God sent a torrential downpour and we never went up the road and uh, found out after the fact that God was sparing our lives from that. Um, another time there, there was a very evil wicked city uh, called Hilitla, and um, they would they were always opposed to us coming and preaching the gospel, and uh, especially uh, the mayor who controls all the permits for that sort of thing in public gatherings was totally resistant, and they began to pray, and eventually God changed the mayor's heart, and uh, even as an unbeliever, he said, I want y'all to come, like just all of a sudden, just total change, and we showed up and preached the gospel, and many, many people got saved. I mean, there's different expressions of, of miracles, but um, those are just a, a few examples. Uh, Craig Keener has written a book called Miracles that's like two volumes long that where he really researched whether miracles are authentic and uh, defends the authenticity of lots of uh, real-life examples of miracles. So anyway, that's just kind of another subject. All right, let's take a break, and then we will come back for some Q&A and try to wrap up about 12, all right.